Okay, welcome to Diving Into the Wreckage, and I'm talking with Sean today about an article he's going to release on China that we... I'm framing this as our China debates, and I think Mm. it's because I have both found the great betrayal and the China as as proletarian consciousness uh, somewhat both unsatisfactory. Mm. Um, And I think as we go into it, we'll get into why. um, One of the things I'm going to say is, is one of the immediate things I'm going to push back on is that Xi Jinping is actually an extension of Ding Xiaoping, even though when I talk to both Dingists from China and anti-Dingists from China, they're both fond of Xi Jinping and they are hmm. not, they have diametrically opposed views of them. Hmm. Interesting. I, um, I wrote this, I will say like as preface that the people who are listening to this right now, we're going to be referencing a lot from this. It's about an 11 page article that I wrote, uh, aided tremendously by uh, the notes from uh, Varn and also from Andy from my podcast, who was supposed to be on, but he couldn't make it uh, today. My purpose in this and why I hope you read it, there's going to be links for this. I'm also going to put it out on the uh, Antifada Patreon. Um, and I think it's going to go up on Substack like a day or two before this happens. Uh, my intention on this was twofold. The first is to dust off my old writing skills. I haven't written anything for the public uh, probably since, believe it or not, the um, the Scott Walker um wisconsin uh state capital insurrection uh that was the good insurrection not january 6th this was the good capital insurrection back in i believe it was 2011 i wrote a public piece but i haven't really written much since then for a lot of reasons but this was my attempt to get back into the game because you know the things that you and i talk about varn and also the things that i talk about on the podcast all the time are kind of you know there, there's interviews with new people with new ideas or whatever there's discussions with old friends and just talks about books or whatever and i feel as though i'm constantly like putting out questions and i'm putting out like kind of i don't know um tentative theories about how things work but for myself i wanted to start to actually like cohere something and i wanted it to be more than just my disembodied voice out there for people but i wanted to be somewhat more systematic uh, about how I approach these things. And I don't think anything is better than writing for that, obviously, because not just is it all presented out there for everybody to read, but it also forces you to sit down and think about the contradictions within your own thoughts uh, to provide evidence for the things that, you know, maybe I've been spouting on about for what, four or five years now at this point. Um, and so I thought this was a fruitful exercise and hopefully it'll be the first of uh, many, you know, I've, I've got some other ideas for things to write. If people are hoping that this is going to be like a weekly thing, like a, you know, oh, he's going to start publishing all the time. Don't get your hopes up. You know, I've been on and off work for the last month or so, and it's given the off time has given me a lot of time to do this, but it'll be a sporadic thing, but it'll be good. So the other thing that led me to write this was it really came out of a lot of the conversations you and I have been having about China uh, our conversations we've been having about uh, the left post Bernie, 
uh, conversation, a great conversation uh, that Andy and I had with uh, Brett from Rev Left Radio, where we started talking about the potentials um, for proletarian uh, self-organization and activity within China. All these things kind of brought me to this first article of mine I wanted to put out because the question of China is one that, as we all know, looms extremely large over all of us. If there is one example of a large uh, you know, nation state body of people uh, who represent perhaps uh, what's left of the great struggles of the 20th century, uh, what's left of actually existing socialism. It is, of course, China, China geopolitically, China economically as the workshop of the world, uh, China as uh, China, uh, socialism with Chinese characteristics as something that everybody here on the Anglophone left and the Western left, whatever you want to call it, is forced to reckon with one way or the other. The way that we do reckon with it, and again, I hope that you have this piece in front of me. If you don't, we'll kind of talk around it, but you should check it out at some point. You know, what ends up happening is that um, where you land on what China is uh, and where we think China is going uh, what's China's relationship to the rest of the global capitalist economy uh, becomes a sort of ball that people bat around rhetorically and in terms of trying to refine their own positions vis-a-vis this, I think for very obvious reasons. Uh, what Derek and I have been basically um, arguing for a while is that a lot of this debate, and tell me if I'm wrong here if you don't agree with this, but a lot of this uh, debate is a, is a sign of uh, many of the failures we've seen over the last 5, 10, 15 years of a sort of independent, uh, autonomous, socialist or communist uh, politics uh, arising uh, in places like the United States or Europe or South America that could posit something new and in the in the in and lacking that lacking some real practical way uh, for people to engage either on the shop floor level or effectively within the political sphere uh, we especially in the age of media uh, social media we all take performative stances we all look back to the 20th century and the great struggles therein and and judge china based on sort of abstractions or or based on particular judgments we make about 1917 or 1936 or 1949 or whatever so china becomes the shibboleth this uh way of uh encountering politics way of defining our own politics but in almost every case with very little stakes involved and very little actual practical activity coming out of that, except for like sectarian or subsectarian, like individual uh, arguments and debates online about, you know, uh, what, what socialism is and, and whether it can work or not, whether of course, you know, there is still, and this is the important thing in the essay and then I'll kick it to you. Just say this and whether or not the working class still even really matters anymore. Uh, for historical development in the world. Because if you take seriously that China is in a lower stage of socialism and technocratically working itself towards the overcoming of that uh, through the party leadership uh, and through state structures, through public-private partnerships and using capital in order to move things in a socialist direction, then there really is no place for the working class uh, either in China or, of course, here, because we're all sort of passive observers uh, of a process that's simply unfolding um, thousands of miles away. Yeah, so I would agree with you that I think China has become more than the other social, uh, actually existing social estates, and the, all those are in quotation marks, uh, 
other than maybe Cuba, uh, a sign of where you lie on a bunch of questions. I think this sees modern China as solely the product of of Marxist historiography, which I think is weirdly Eurocentric. Hmm. Um, I think this also often superimposes a somewhat weakish version of a Hegelian framework and and development of productive forces onto China. I think that... um, there's also a failure to deal with the fact that China, even more than some of the other naturally uh, actually existing socialist countries, has a clear business cycle and has going back into the 1960s um, and definitely has a clear business cycle um, starting about in 2009. Mm-hmm. Um, but but you can actually find evidence of business cycle activity and growth and growth rate fluctuations going all the way back to the end of the Great leap forward. There are none before then. Um, I also think China uh, is an interesting issue because if you remove it from the data, from the from the from the data um, of the quote developing nations, middle income nations, now uh, low income nations, in the end of the twentieth century. Um, you lose most of the the wealth growth uh, of the quote you know poor and most of the world. You don't lose all of it. It's still it's still they still exist in some places, but it's it is much more meager at, um, when you like section out places like India or um, or I don't know. Uh, Indonesia, Malaysia, uh, most of Latin America, etc. The, the problem that you have, though, w- w- with that is the other success stories are not all so uh, are not all socialist in any meaningful sense. Mm-hmm. So your other success stories that you can compare China to: uh, Japan, Korea, yeah. Vietnam, Singapore. Now they all actually have similar developmental paths, but they do not have similar ideological frameworks for that developmental path. Um, and, and in some cases, for example, and I know this is going to make people uncomfortable, there are elements of the, of like the, the welfare state and social services that are more developed in South Korea than they are in China, mm. which should make people uncomfortable. Mm. Um, for example, uh, healthcare in China, to call it, it is not... <sighs> It is not public or private, really. Um, so I have pointed out that, like, there there is no socialized medicine in the way we consider, like, even in, like, a, a Britain framework in China. However, mm-hmm. 95% of the population has basic health insurance coverage. So 25 people are covered by employee-provided insurance, and 75% of the people are covered by... Um, residence insurance. And you got to remember about China, even now, it's still 40% what we would call peasantry, mm-hmm. which is something I still think people have not, like, even with these magazines, even with this massive growth of Chinese industry, most productive, uh, not per capita, but overall economy in the world, uh, it's still a very rural peasant phenomenon. Medical assistance uh, is subsidized for about 78 million poor people. But again, look at China's population size. 
uh, that's not even the like China's population size is well over a billion. It's one point three now. Yeah, uh, edging towards one point four, I believe. So yeah, so seventy eight million is actually kind of small in that scenario, and insurance does not cover uh, did not cover all costs or even necessarily majority of costs until 2018. Now uh, the healthcare insurance is required to cover 70% uh, of cost uh, as co-insurance, which I don't know if you know, but that's actually worse than most insurance plans in the United Mm -hmm. States. So my, my point about bringing these kind of facts up is that what I find in the discussion of China is a paucity of facts or very selective facts. So for example, Mm-hmm. One thing that's often brought up by people uh, and the InfraHaz community is that China's mm-hmm. uh, a lot of China's firms are uh, majority share co-ops um, that the employees own most of the firm. Now, one of the things that you actually when you actually look at this, this is structured in a myriad of different ways. But let's just take like uh, a Huawei or Weiwo or any of those. Uh, technology company that's been banned by the United States or sanctioned under the United States, a producer of cell phones and other sorts of communication devices. Right, right, right. It is 90% owned by the, by the, by the employees, but the employees are actually governed by not, they don't just get their shares that is governed by an oversight committee and 1% goes to the founder, but that 1% is still enough to make him one of the, one of the more rich people in the world. Mm. So, there's a reason why there's been a shift and, and you kind of document the shift from a hostility to, to dungism. And I'm going to go into where some of that hostility comes from. I think in the West, it, you're right in, in talking about it. But I think when you actually read some Chinese scholars on this, mm. the critique of dungism is, is more thorough. Hmm. Uh, I would believe it since I'm not a uh, Mandarin speaker. <laughs> right. <or a> reader. <laughs> I'm not a Mandarin speaker either. And, um, and so I've had to rely on people who are, but I've talked about interviewing Dong Ping Han and the, and the people who defend the great proletarian social revolution. Mm. And a lot of what they point out happened in the immediate Dung administrations is a level of privatization that I don't think we quite always comprehend. Mm. Yeah. Um, a, a high level of privatization. Yeah. I mean, for example, it, Rural schools were entirely were almost in, were were mostly privatized. The education of women was was no longer subsidized by the state at all in rural areas. The barefoot doctor system was ended, and it actually slowed Chinese uh, longevity rates significantly. Amartya mm. Sen has actually documented this pretty well. And Amartya Sen's not a Marxist. Starting right? in the nineteen eighties and nineties. Yes. Yeah. So what you see, for example, even during the Great Leap Forward, even during the Great Proletarian uh, Cultural uh, Revolution, which we see as very violent periods, there was a steady march up of lifespan in China. That stalls in the mid eighties and does mm. not recover until the aughts. Mm. All right. So these are the kinds of things that I point out when we try to talk about this in a broad-based view. It, I don't say this to discredit Chinese leadership. I One, I would say, like, like actually similar to the Soviet Union, a lot of the politics is sectoral and regional and not ideological in a way that is quite opaque to mm-hmm. outsiders and maybe even outsiders of the government in China. Like, mm-hmm. I've, uh, two, 
where there have been ideological movements, they've been kind of both stomped out and consolidated. And that's one of the interesting things we can talk about about the Xi period. Mm. So, for example, the the new Chinese left, which was more or less, you know, headed up by Bo Xilai and uh, uh, Chongqing uh, province, um, w- was kind of stomped out by the anti-corruption campaigns. But a new Maoist movement was incorporated and made more friendly to the government under Xi. Mm. Um, another thing that that happened with stuff like healthcare China, we sometimes call the health. Uh, uh, um, what is it? Well, I think it is uh, uh, Healthy China 2020 initiative, which uh, is a kind of interesting thing. What I did in my piece, and you 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 mentioned judgment. Uh, you know what I. What I'm kind of sick of is people trying to, again, uh, judge what's been happening since the 1970s, let alone the, the 1940s, um, through the land, through like a very particular lens. Uh, it's not just this conception of betrayal, uh, but also without any conception of like the actual context in which leadership makes the decisions that it makes. This is why I tried to juxtapose like two different sort of historiographies that we can hold in our heads at the same time. And I think that this historiography ends up tripping a lot of people up because they see the life expectancy gains uh, and they see the literacy gains. uh, They see per capita income gains and they say, well, this is why socialism is good. You know, this is this is only this is something you can only have had um, through the leadership of the party. Uh, this is something that's an unalloyed good. And part of our actual project is this developmentalism, right? Using markets, using capital in order to to uh, to increase life chances for people. This is a very, again, like Whiggish conception of history. You know, that history, as you said, is this sort of Hegelian telos of the opening up of freedoms and markets, uh, leaving the oppressions of the past, leaving the poverty of the past behind. And human history is sort of this unfolding of markets and freedom. Um, There, it is bizarre to us, and we should take this as bizarre in one sense, that there's a lot of communists who are making this argument right now. Uh, But it's not bizarre in another sense, because, of course, there's something about the Marxist project and uh, Marxist theory that leads us in this particular position. But people then, again, use this sort of Whiggist conception in a way that that... um, that necessarily then these these processes happening in China uh, are going to lead to the sort of social and political developments under the auspices of the party uh, that will fundamentally change the social form. Uh, and not only that in China, but also lead the rest of humanity uh, in that particular uh, direction. This is the sort of bargain here. So there's a sort of Marxist Whiggishness that exists that we ourselves, it's I think it's folly, or at least it's conceded for us to say like, well, all those gains came out of exploitation. They came out of oppression. They came out of ongoing primitive accumulation. They came out of a an authoritarian party elite using capital in order to enslave, you know, this sort of thing. I think that we can we can look at these at this develop. We can look at the reasons why the leadership did that, which I somewhat mentioned in the article. The reasons why the turn from market to market seemed necessary and probably historically were necessary as the socialist developmental regime runs out of steam by the 1970s, as this like social chaos of the great proletarian cultural revolution leads to like a conservative reaction to the sort of mass politics and the, the kind of organic struggle or semi-organic struggle, which was sort of the lifeblood of politics all the way up to the 1970s. You know, we can, 
we can understand that at the same time and say that fundamentally all these changes that have happened were good for hundreds of millions of Chinese people, but also recognize at the same time that there's this competing way to look at it, which of course is historical materialism and understanding how just opening up markets, uh, allowing a free market in labor power, um, going through breakneck industrialization, going through breakneck urbanization leads to particular changes within uh, this this society uh, that engender new antagonisms, uh, which I argue in the piece means that you can't write the working class of China off. You can't say that the process of mass politics is over in China uh, because opening up those floodgates uh, of capital and the class antagonism, the class relation and class antagonism um, should also be at, in the forefront of our minds because it, socialism isn't just more schools and better schools, uh, better jobs, uh, better health care and whatever. If we go down that route, then we're just social Democrats, which is fine. People can be social Democrats, but we want to, sorry about that. We want to be able to look past that, I believe. Well, one thing I would say is my, my, I'm, this is going to piss a lot of people off. Please. That's what we're here for. Um, but my suggestion is that a lot of dungest Maoists in particular are social Democrats. Uh, a lot of Leninists are social Democrats. Yeah, they're, fundamentally, they, they, they're Kautskyists. <laughs> right. Like, um, in some, at some ways, I'd I even argue they're Lasallians, mm. um, which is. And they often do not understand either the ideological or the political or the economic developments of a lot of the places that they're talking about. Like, for example, I know a lot of people who are Marxist-Leninist who will defend uh, the late Stalin work, economic, the new economic problems in the Soviet Union, where he mm. basically gives up on value abolition and a bunch of other stuff. Um but they're also supporters of third periodism without mm. realizing that, that there's an economic theory behind third periodism too, about the immediate coming final crisis. crisis yeah. Um, in addition to the political disagreement with the social Democrats that they are de-wedding, decoupling and ad hocing. Yeah. Dehistoricizing. Right. However, a lot of people think I am a Marxist Leninist because I will, I will do things that sound like I'm defending Stalin. So, for example, I have said, given the choices that that are made after the NEP is is abandoned, is abandoned, um, that decolonization and a kind of Bonapartist central structure was the only way to hold this project together, um, particularly because uh, they have unleashed social forces that they can't control and you will hear this being used for example that the like the use of china the purges um is actually a manifestation of democratic will to oppress a developing bureaucratic class or petite bourgeoisie class mm. uh there's a way in which that is true um there's also which a way in which that is completely misleading because to clarify this for people who might not be following this, so the NEP is like the the state um, still controlling the commanding heights of industry, 
uh, and finance, obviously, too. But you have the opening up of markets and like petty production and, of course, in the countryside as well. And so you have this sort of like this twofold path that the economy is on. Uh, this leads to like all sorts of middle peasants and petty traders uh, beginning to sort of recreate the sort of social relations uh, of you know, of capitalism, which reaches a political head, of course, with uh, disagreements between Trotsky and Zinoviev, and eventually Stalin, who very opportunistically actually takes um, Trotsky's position on like breakneck mass collective industrialization, collectivization of the peasantry, mm -hmm. and all of the, you know, when, when anti-communists point to like the great uh, death toll of communism and to the brutality of it. This process, of course, engenders mass violence and the purges kind of come out of this. And the other thing that I think is missed is a lot of the mass violence actually is tied to industrialization in the cities and trying to breakneckly industrialize at a pace that does not allow for careful construction. And thus, when stuff starts to happen because you can't build industrial capacity as fast as they're trying to do without cost finding what is effectively scapegoats for for the cost like with stuff breaking for inefficiencies um you know wastage and because you know i've just been reading uh alf Heben on the what is the ussr debate again i read some of the stalin too you told me to read uh economic problems of the soviet union i've been back into this question and um yeah like there's there's a way in which the discussions today about china are very redolent of these debates of the 1920s you know you've got this conception of um the law of value um mm. which you know is a heady thing the law of value becoming uh, in contradiction with this uh, alternate path which is the law of planning uh you have like this conception of of course state capitalism which being a higher form of course than laissez-faire uh being you know, uh, nationalization and, and socialization of industry in that particular way, leading to like an overcoming of the anarchy and the chaos of the markets, uh, but all as part of a process moving towards the overcoming of the law of value. And it's a very, this sort of way of looking at it is a very formalistic one. And it, it touches on what you were speaking about before with these different property ownership structures of capital that we see in China and people justifying um, the Chinese uh, socialists with Chinese cap, uh, characteristics by pointing to these various different forms of either cooperative ownership on paper uh, or, of course, state-owned uh, state enterprises or whatever as a, uh, an example of the ways in which uh, capitalism is being overcome, but these, but it's very much like a formalistic distinction, right? Like the ownership of property uh, and the actual process of production and the relations of production, uh, they're related to one another, right? But by only looking at who on paper has the ownership as opposed to who is actually doing the work, who is being, who is directing the work and who is actually getting the fruits of that. Uh, and how what the context of this particular work is within a larger, not just national, but global system. People get all sorts of confused on that because we're not, you know, I I, I think I put in the piece something about how if we're going to stand dung, uh, we should be standing Olaf Pleim, you know, in Sweden of the 1970s. If we're exactly. going to go back to this conception of like socialism is when government does stuff, then um, I think that's a, a capitulation. I think to, to, to posit the Chinese model against the Nordic model when your version of the Chinese model is the Dungus period 
is to actually take a slightly more privatized view than the than the Nordic model. And I and I would argue that a lot of the people who argue that China is not capitalist are the same people who will argue that Sweden is. Mm, very confused. Which is confused. I mean, yeah. like another another problem that you have about and this is where my research like will come smash down into like even Lenin's conception of these developments. Lenin's the person who talks about state capitalism as a necessary form of development. Um, it's seen as it's seen off of the the research of Bakarin on imperialism as something mm-hmm. that's also happening in the capitalist world as well. Uh, it, this is universally accepted under theories of monopoly capitalism in the 1950s and early 60s. Um, I say universally. Paul Maddock didn't accept it, so I can't say. But <laughs> but he is very much an outlier by the time the nineteen fifties come. Um, and good for that reason, of course. But one of the things that I think that that the reason why I bring up business cycles are I will bring up that until two thousand and thirteen, two thousand fourteen, the Gini coefficient in China, which is the level of inequity from the bottom to the top, was higher than in the West. That is not true that now it's been undone, like the, their, their G coefficient is, is lowering, which is, you know, after one of the discussions with you, I actually posted this on Facebook. I'm like, there's a reason why Xi Jinping is popular mm-hmm. in China. And that's because even though he hasn't gone back and it says he doesn't foresee them going back to a planned non-market economy or even reducing the role of the market in China significantly. Um, he has control it. He has done rural development. He has expanded, uh, like I said, the, the the Healthy China Project, the the, the Red New Deal. He has Not to mention made, infrastructure spending, yeah, Shit. massive infrastructure spending. Um, he has controlled a lot of the the elements of media dominance of like. I know it's hard for people to, to understand, but until very recently, we used to refer to China when I was in the international school circuit as the wild East, mm. because you could get away with almost anything in its educate in its private educational sector, mm. which seems crazy for a communist country. Mm-hmm. Um, and supposedly the one with a social credit system, which is going to lead to the sort of surveillance tyranny, right. the likes of which we've never seen before. That's the right wing and the, and the liberal talking point uh, on the left, but right. you're saying that has shifted now. It has shifted. Um, There was an attempt to rein those in um, in the beginning of of 2020, right before COVID really became obviously a problem. Uh, The Chinese response to COVID was that first denial, uh, then then really robust response. Um, well, let's let's call them responses, right? Yes. Because there's a lot of ass covering on a local level and a regional level. And there's like, of course, within, let's not talk about uh, the governing class as a, as a monolith, you know, just right. as in the United States, you know, we have the Democrats, Republicans, and everybody in between or on the outside of that. You also have various different interest groups, various different political well, factions, as you and- said, very opaque to us often. And it's also like the current uh, uh, federal, it's not really federal, but national level Chinese responses to limit Western injunctions, some of which is for 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 perfectly understandable points. The 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 government flirting with the lab leak theory, even though there's not a ton of evidence for it. It's not impossible, but there's not a ton from 
from a virologist, but yet I know plenty of people who now believe that it's more viable than the vi- viral research seems to indicate it would be. Uh, but they also didn't really allow a whole lot of studying of the Wuhan markets either. Um, and there's yeah. been an attempt in China from the government to posit, frankly, counter conspiracy theories. It was if- immediately geopolitical, of course, right. right? because this is within the context of the ramping up of like the tensions between the two countries. There's something really funny popped up on my feed the other day on Twitter, which was an article by Radio Free Asia talking about how the funding and building um, of a new high-speed railway line through Laos and also like a superhighway in order to obviously develop Laos and tie it into the Belt and Road Initiative and the global economy or whatever, risks, um, you know, uh, zoo, uh, what's the zoonosis, risks a new pandemic because you're opening up all these uh, hitherto for like unreachable places to people and to development and um, basically, you know, the uh, Mike Davis thesis in uh, The Monster Enters, right, that it's this peri-urban development and this encounter between um, markets and people and uh, wildlife, uh, specifically, that capitalist development brings us the pandemic. This was an article, of course, by like basically the CIA. And so hundreds of people, leftists, good leftists, jumped on there and said, this is trying to shame China you know, for doing for doing like harmonious development and by helping out what, the Malaysian people, they're right. but but they're right. But also, Mike but Davis they're also, is right. <laughs> they're <laughs> also know? like you have to you have to ignore the arguments that we've made about the West doing this. Yeah, to not see how it will happen. With you China. have to say it's good when China does it. You know, and it in a way it is, but in another way it becomes another sort of like mouse that the two sides can bat around well, with me- each other. There's a Manichaean view of development in all this and and what's good when one side does it and when another doesn't that I think is a child view of the universe. I mean, it's just it's just not useful. Um, it's worse than not useful because, as I stated again in the article, um, we have little to nothing, little or nothing that we can actually even fucking do about it except talk about it. Right. I mean, it's not a distraction per se, but it becomes one when all politics are deferred to like these larger uh, geopolitical questions. When it seems like on the ground here and the places that we live and the places that we work, you know, we're not, we're not really building anything ourselves. So I'm going to say something that's going to be like super controversial, for example. Do like, it. That's what we're here for. Like uh, the Uyghur situation. Yeah, go. Um, Hot there, there is strong evidence from, from China's own documents that residential schooling, um, mass incarceration of, of religious activists, and probably sterilization is going on. Uh, I have pointed out that technically speaking, it meets the definition for genocide, but technically speaking, the definition of genocide actually stops all nation building. Hmm. And I don't think people realize that. So, for example, trying to wipe out someone's cultural practices by force is part of every national development program i've ever seen read pierre bourdieu on the spread of uh the french language and nation building like the building of the french nation was the imposition of 
basically Parisian cultural forms across like a very diverse linguistic and cultural landscape, then destroying old life ways and bringing new ones in uh, through the through swords. <laughs> and, and I don't want to say that I, I know that you're gonna have listeners who think I'm softening what's happening to the Uyghurs because I'm I, I, I actually do think there are some highly problematic uh, denial of what is going on. But one of the things I point out is the UN definition of genocide. I don't think people kind of realize this actually is not just a prohibition on what we call genocide. It is a prohibition on nation building. Mm. Um, Very convenient. If you're already a developed and built up nation in the capitalist core. Exactly. So this, which is not to say that I think nation building is inherently good. I think nation building is inherently ugly and a problem. But there is when China goes, well, you did all this and we're doing it more humane than you did. They are right. Yeah. Like. And um, from the Whiggish perspective, you have to understand that, like, when you talk about the increasing of state capacity, you know, on a lot on a historical scale, you talk about nation building. What that means is the building of infrastructure, the building of healthcare. You can't build a nation state whether it's china or whether it was the united states 150 years ago without these things so from like a a broader sort of liberal historical perspective these are the sort of things that we should expect from a nation in the particular position that that china is in right now to be moralistic about it is of course necessary because the what's happening to the people there in uh, western china uh is abhorrent in many cases but to to pick out what's happening in this particular part of China as something endemic to building socialism, either if you're in support of it or whether you're not, I think mixes up two different modes of analysis here. You know, it, it basically, um, it, it makes it seem as though there's something inherent to the building of socialism in nation building of this particular type, which I, I would argue there isn't. China is going through, as I mentioned over and over in the article, a process of national development, a process of civilizational development, of state building, of industrialization and economy building, which should be very, very familiar to any of us who have looked at the history of the 19th and 20th century across the world. And including myths that people debate about in China. So, for example, you will sometimes get someone like Carl Ja going on and debating how there's a 6,000-year-old Chinese culture. And there's a continuity of culture and government in China, and thus that's the legitimacy of the current state, which, by the way, is the same thing we all did uh, in Europe, at least going back two to 3,000 years about who lives here, what's the continuity of the people here, etc., uh, to justify a, a singular nation. You just, you just did an episode on the creation of tradition by Hobsbawm, right? I did. The, the construction of tradition. And and the reality is that both things are somewhat true in the case of China. There is a discontinuity of both government and peoples. Um, but the Han culture does have in its linguistic form in Chinese characters, not a Mandarin Chinese. Mandarin is actually not that very, uh, an old of a spoken language, by the way. Mm. It's like maybe a thousand years old, but, but we do have a consistent written language culture in a language family going back to this area, at least 6,000 years. Okay, Mm -hmm. fine. Why does that matter? What matters is that's because the European nation states did. It matters because all nation states, uh, even decolonial nation states, and this is the irony of, uh, of decolonialism. Even this is a huge fight in African circles. If you've read about this, 
is like, well, we have to accept nation states and national frameworks to be able to resist uh, colonization. But in doing so, we are also accepting elements of col- of the colonizer's uh, moral, legal, and economic framework. Mm. Um, and so there are debates within the decolonial movement about how legitimate or delegitimate that is. Uh, the, I always point out this as a, you know, um, um, the African writer in the English language uh, by Chinua Chibe, but it, it, this is across the board. And you see similar debates within China. Mm. Um, we're in the fifth generation of Chinese leadership. We're on like the seventh generation of leadership of the party, by the way, Mao's not one of the original leaders of the party. He comes in kind of late, not late, but he comes in, he, he, he's one of the first generation, but he's not of the founding mm. members of the, uh, of the CPC. Most of whom were wiped out in Shanghai, right? The, yeah, they either died in Shanghai the or Shanghai commune, the first right. one. And there is, there is also ways in which, and this is going to make people uncomfortable, the, the winning side of that debate developed arguments that also developed in Italy and in France that led to development of national socialism in mm. those areas. It's not parallel to Nazism, mm. but for example, Mussolini and uh, one of the, one of the pre-Mao leaders of the party, both simultaneously and, and concurrently develop ideas of what proletarian nationhood, mm. mm-hmm. uh, the nation as the actor of the class, etc. cetera. Uh, there's also, you know, what what makes Maoism unique? Well, what makes Maoism unique is not anti-imperialism. Anti-imperialism is shared by um, almost all Marxist post-Second International. Mm-hmm. Um, what makes Maoism unique is that it makes imperialism both a primary and a political question, not an economic question or a political mm. economic question. That mm. is actually its division, not just with Trotskyism or quote Leninism or second international Maoism, quote Kowskyism or Neo-Kowskyism. It's also a division with Marxist Leninism. Yeah, because it, it, it uh, instantiates itself in uh, the block of four classes, right? Like the right. conception of a national bourgeoisie versus a comprador bourgeoisie, and actually like the way in which class collaboration is built into the construction of Chinese socialism by way of anti-imperialism. Going by- all the way back to marrying, uh, making the deal of uh, of Soviet alliance, not with the C- with the Chinese Communist Party initially, but with the Kuomintang under orders of Stalin. Yeah. So. One of the things about what brings about the, the, the Sino-Soviet split, which is one of the things that I do think a betrayal thesis may actually be valid on. but Stalin it's, having betrayed the Chinese. It's Stalin betraying the Chinese and then the Chinese later betraying the Soviet Union back in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Like, so, okay. so it's Double like, betrayal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but it, it's, I mean, and it's very hard for me when I talk about this because the, the period of, of China where I think we learn the most is the great proletarian social revolution because it's the time when there's an actually existing uh, socialist state that really does try to do uh, the abolition of town and country, mm-hmm. the um, the social revolution from the thr- from the from the 
three-partite revolutionary framework of Marxist of like 40s Marxist Leninism, which is the uh, the the revolutions go put uh, political, economic, social, cultural. Mm. Um, that's where that framework comes from, as opposed to the permanent revolution, where where, where all three of them are happening at the same time. And for people, I don't think people kind of understood that theoretical difference, even people who throw it around. Mm. Um, one of the the Trotskyist arguments is that you can't separate any of these from any other of these, um, whereas the 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 argument um that is articulated by stalin and picked up by mao but actually practiced by mao like hmm. the 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 cultural revolution in russia is not nearly as significant as a cultural revolution in china the cultural hmm. revolution in russia is like in the 30s then you have um the 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 purges in the us Chiba, and then you have the uh the great war period which is actually where a whole lot of like uh, institutions that were try- that that were attempted to be opposed, to like the like the Orthodox Church, are merely controlled. Um, so there's no longer an attempt to completely purge the Orthodox Church from Russian mm. society, but to control it pretty significantly, etc. Um, this uh, there's no longer an attempt. You know, Stalin is really big at. I know this sounds strange to people, but Stalin is really big on suppressing Russian nationalism mm. in the 20s and 30s. And by the time you get to the 40s and and the early 50s, he goes back and forth on it. He's just changing. Like he's not consistent. Like when people are like, oh, Stalin introduces Russification. I used to believe that too. When I've actually de- delved into scholars who study this, it seems. He vacillated. He's, he vacillated quite a bit. He's great. What is he grasping at straws, trying to? Uh, I think it. I think it was really contextually depending on what he needed to do to win the war or, or to maintain this or that policy. So it was opportunistic, essentially. Yeah, but it wasn't. Uh, there's a way in which anti-communists read this as opportunistic for Stalin's own power. Mm. I don't think it was that either. I think it was opportunistic yeah. to like keep these programs going and, and to co and to cohere you know right. the the state structure to cohere society around this this larger project of defeating nazis right right uh, and later on defeating and socialist construction yeah defeating the capitalists with the idea however that they can't freak the capitalists out too much too early because then they will get crushed mm. like th- this is this is the line that stalin's trying to walk this is also the line mao's trying to walk but by the time you get into the 60s this uh, like the Sino-Soviet split is a slow unfolding that you can really see even before Mao becomes the leader of the Communist Party. It is mm. it is beginning to happen when tensions with like the early Chinese leadership and marrying. Um, it's a reflection of the failure of the Comintern, right? Or a failure of the entire defensist project around the Soviet Union. It's, it's a reflection of the great struggles of the 1920s between uh, internationalism and uh, defense of socialism in one country. You know, it's it's the old um, subordination of uh, national communist movements to uh, the Soviet uh, to Soviet defense, basically, right. not in the geopolitical sphere. But then, of course, to following from that a defense of the model itself, right. uh, whatever that particular model happened to be at, at one moment or another. Right. And, and so there's a whole lot of talk about needing for revolutionary bourgeoisie. I mean, that goes back to classical Marxism. Um, so so all this is there in China from the beginning. 
and it's all playing out. Mao is a figure so mercurial and thus so useful in the West. And, and the reason why I think he's useful for sectarian organizations is that particularly in the 60s and 70s, you have wild fluctuations in theoretical justifications about what's going on in China from China itself. Mm. Uh, and that's largely because they are no longer subordinating themselves to the Soviet Union at all. But mm. that's also because like, they are shifting what they are doing in practice wildly. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that's uh, interesting about when we talk about like a dungism and, and liberals used to like dung, I think we've seen where they're pivoting now, but liberals like dung because it would allow China to be in the D- world trade organization and allow a democratization and basically imprint upon China, the political uh, model of the West. Right. And if we remember the, the, the dialogue from, from you when you and I were in our twenties, liberals were like, "Well, China's doing well, but if it, if it ever drops between a temp, below a ten percent growth rate, then they'll probably overthrow the government, just mm. like in the USSR." And it'll look just like the United States at that right. point. <laughs> Which even then I thought was absurd because I'm like, and people drop below ten percent all the time, and yes, China has a huge population, but. Uh, it's also aging, and India doesn't have government overthrows every other day, and it's in a much worse situation. <laughs> so, oh, like, yeah, for sure, it just uh, has uh, pogroms against yeah. uh, Muslim minorities. Yes. Um, so, so what does that mean for us? I think lately, what's become interesting is that the ideological justification for China is no longer actually often done on Marxist Leninist lines, even though it's nominally. So it's done on like, well, they're going to be a counter hegemon to the dollar and thus we can have a different form of MMT or whatever. Yeah. Uh, which I will say, I'm just going to go ahead and go down the limb. They definitely want to weaken the dollar as the sole currency hegemon. They, that that's clearly something they want to do. They do not seem to want the yuan to replace it because it seems like Chinese planners think if they did that, they would have to allow the kind of uh, fluctuations of currency and whatnot. And capital flows, right? And capital flows that they don't even allow internally to China. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, To the entire world. It's a threat to the model. Right. So, So they're in a very interesting situation. I, last year, I was saying that the Belt and Road Initiative was largely over. I don't think that's true now, but it has dramatically changed in, in its orientation. The pullback in new spending has been incredible. I saw a graph recently where it's down to like 5% of what it was even four or five years ago. Yeah, it's 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 hugely cut back. Um, and partly- then as we as we spoke about in our discussions of the debt crisis, which still going on folks look at what's happening in congress right now that's a political manifestation of it but uh as we talked about in that you know a lot of these loans are starting to come due and china is stuck in an unenviable position where a lot of of course the developmental credits and loans that they put out there uh you know, nations are having a hard time paying back. And so China is trying to figure out what its role as a creditor dealing with defaults is. And so far, it's been trying to basically kick the can down the road. But you've got like, what, a trillion dollars worth of yuan out there, which has to be paid back in the midst of a global debt crisis and kind of a slow rolling, slow moving uh, crisis of capital in general right now. 
we're beginning to see uh, a recession, even an increase of unemployment, which is which is I crazy. am a living and breathing example. I got laid off last week, and it wasn't just a little like oh, things will be slow for a little bit. It, it was a uh, there's no work, right? And going around and talking to people, at least in the building trades in New York City, the union side of it, I, I feel it. It's it seems pretty real right now, anecdotally. Um, so it happened first in the tech sector. I don't think one thing I'm going to point out. I I don't think this was planned, but I do think there's a reason why you're seeing all this chat GPT automation at the moment you're seeing it. Mm. Um, tight uh, tight labor market, especially uh, for people with college degrees. Is that what you're saying? Yes. So there's one way out of the the great morass of the of the precaritized uh, working class into a more stable form of working class uh, that we like to call PMC. Well, those things are going away. And what, what I, what I love is like, it's the PMC people in the quote PMC who are complaining about it, but I'm like, also like, well, but you know, you're like, it's, you aren't going to be replaced, right? You, like the elite managers that you're really mad at, are definitely going to still be in charge. Yeah, but, chat uh, GPT t- can't do that. But what it can do is put a severe downward pressure on uh, your wages, your benefits, and your conditions. Because even to the extent that it doesn't replace, it merely augments uh, you know, white-collar wage labor, it's going to be a cudgel which is going to be used against all people in these various different industries from like uh, the legal industry to like advertising to, to God fucking education. We're seeing with the, with the writer's strike right now, uh, a huge aspect of that is trying to fight off attempts to use in the future AI as a way to, you know, um, make those people. Far I more hate to say that I don't think they're going to win either. Yeah. Um, it, it's easy to ruin a strike on conditions. It's hard to ruin a strike on reducing socially necessary labor time. It's tough to actually confront the technical composition of the production process because right. that's something that um, the unions gave up when the communists were purged, uh, or you could even say when the when uh, the NLRA uh, emerged in the nineteen uh, nineteen thirty three. The prerogative over the composition of capital, the prerogative over the shop floor and the process of production, has been a done debate in this country for almost a hundred years at this point in time. That is the one thing that capital will not allow at this moment. So, so you have a justification from people like Michael Hudson that's like, oh, well, they have socialism, but it's really socialism through the development of industrial capital, and industrial capital is better than financial capital. Oh, here's yeah, my, you hear a lot of that shit out there, yeah. Yeah, here's the problem with that. What do you fuck you think you got financial capital from? <laughs> and what relation is there between financial capital and industrial, industrial capital? capital? I mean, yeah. like, it's just such a, like like sectional appeal it's just like the my argument with mmtiers is not that i think monetary theory is wrong it's that i think it has a naive view of power uh there are modern monetary theories who do try to address this and i try to give them credit for that but even then i'm still often like i think you like for example uh there's like, well, you need to develop this stuff now, and then you can try to control, you can try to tax hurt the rich later. That's a, often an argument that I've heard recently, as opposed to the old argument that from like 10 years ago that, oh, it's just bad ideology. Um, and I'm like, well, that's fair enough, but they have the power now. Mm. It's and, and yeah, it's not about taxes um, in any of these scenarios. I mean, it's not about taxes in the, in the Chinese state either. Um 
it's about it's about commanding power. Um, one of the things that Mike Davis's real pessimism at the end of his life about China was that he did see Xi Jinping uh, as the end of kind of the collective leadership of mm. uh, of China. Mm-hmm. That China had resisted the kind of red Bonapartism after Mao. Um, for good and ill, I mean, Deng was kind of a Bonapartist, but after Deng, uh, Xi Jinping and Hu Jintao, there were real limitations on their on on, on their power. Mm. Um, and the consolidation of power under Xi, using not just his bully pulpit and his power within the apparatus, but also raising up a lot of his um, supporters and uh, functionaries to positions of power, even to the extent that I saw the other day that in the executive committee, there can no longer be, uh, as of a couple days ago, appeals to like abstractions or ideologies like Marxism-Leninism or even socialism with Chinese uh characteristics in policy planning in policy debates instead it's uh you know it's uh it's a more practical matter of what it is that chi and uh, his particular faction uh wants to put forward more practical in that sense right um so and yet if you like if you ask me a period of maoism even though i talked about how Mao's own leadership in China and the various different factions that existed under him. I could tell you roughly what they believed. I can tell you about what three worlds theory was. I can tell you about Lin Bao's position. I can tell you about the theories of the great proletarian revolution. Um, I can tell you about all these things. It's hard as hell for me to tell you what Xiism is. Mm, mm-hmm. um, now, however, I'm going to push back on the notion that he's just a, an authoritarian leader because that does not seem to be true either. Mm. Um, he has consolidated power in ways that we have not seen since Mao. Um, and, but he's not unpopular. He doesn't have, like he doesn't have to suppress stuff very often. Mm. The, the amount of public, uh, there's still a lot of, of, uh, worker agitation although it's gone down dramatically from what it was during the huge Jintao period mm. uh, where it was like really going up the mass strikes of what the mid-aughts to to like to, 2012 yeah. yeah to 2012 which and, i argue in the piece is like and, and uh, andreas malm argued this in fossil capital is sort of the peak the moment of peak proletarianization uh, in china where what's left of the reserve army of labor in the countryside is kind of wrung out and now sort of economically imminently you have this the need for a new developmental model not based on cheap labor uh, mass industrialization you need to have a demand shift towards more service side um, middle income sort of uh, industries yeah which they've done yeah effectively the the problems there are some problems for china that that worry me that worry like normal liberal commentators unlike normal liberal commentators i don't necessarily think there are going to lead to immediate social collapse yeah uh, one is there is going to be a demographic crisis and 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 i'm actually going to go out on the limb and says there needs to be a demographic mm. crisis um whether or not yes maybe we could exist on this planet with a huge population if resources were more allied were f- more fairly allocated but they are not more fairly allocated so yeah uh, and also the, the the decline in the birth rate is part of like a long secular 
process yeah. that takes place uh, in all sort of matured uh, industrial and post-industrial uh, economies. So we haven't yet seen any policies, especially the people who have been trying it, like in Hungary or, or Italy, they had uh, to, re- to return, you know, to return to, a, to higher birth rates. So there's no indication that China could do any better or anybody could. I mean, even places like here in Utah, where there's religious reasons for there to be such high birth rates, they've been declining for the last 20 years. Mormons still declining in their birth rate. You hate right. to see it. Yeah. I, I want to, we're at about an hour right now. So let's, and I pivot. Wanna, uh, let's pivot. For the people who are listening to this on the Antifada, uh, Derek and I are going to go over to the paywalled side and you can become a patron at patreon.com slash the Antifada. I think this entirety is going to be on your, uh, yeah. on Varn vlog, right? So if you yep. were, interested if you've been listening to the first hour of this and you say wow this is great but i really wish i could see these two chuckleheads on video while i'm doing this uh varn has the entirety of that at patreon.com slash varn vlog where you can watch the two of us gesticulate or whatever so we'll head over there and i think that you kind of threw a gambit down because what i argue towards the end of this article and the reason uh for hope uh coming out of china not being in um, Qi or anybody pushing the communism button at uh, 2049, but instead the sort of social antagonisms giving rise to something like a new communist movement, a mass communist movement in China, uh, which would actually move history forward in a proletarian direction. When I say that, it sounds like the liberal commentators you were talking about who said, uh, you know, when growth rates drop uh, under 10%, uh, you know, the CPC is going to be overthrown. So I guess the questions well, that, that I'll ask Varn is, am I guilty of the same thing? You know, am I just sitting here like a fucking lib saying that there's going to be, you know, that, that this unsustainable and that the Communist Party's days are over and that, uh, you know, somehow liberalism will find a way through the morass of cheese authoritarianism or whatever. Well, I, we'll flesh that out on the other side. Let's flesh that out on the other <laughs> side because I think my answer will will maybe frustrate people who want a clear answer to that. So we'll just, and uh, yeah. and as you put in the comments, when you helpfully uh, commented on my piece in the first draft, you said, I think this is naive, my friend. And so let's talk about that <laughs> yeah. on the other side. Best <laughs> <laughs>